There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Angus Blackman. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the team at policyforum.net, and we're based at Crawford School of Public Policy. We're the leading graduate policy school in the Asia-Pacific region, where you can learn from some of the world's leading experts and policy practitioners. We've got a wide range of short courses available for you if you want to improve your leadership skills, or take it a step further and get into one of our master's degree programs. We offer a plethora of different issues for you to study, from economics to health policy. Find out more at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. According to UNESCO, currently over 500 million students, or 32.1% of the world's student population across 33 countries, are being affected by school closures caused by COVID-19. And while the current number is a significant step down from the 1.5 billion pupils affected in March, COVID-19 is continuing to have an impact on young people's educational outcomes. With classrooms reduced to computer screens, exams delayed or cancelled, and many parents forced to homeschool their children, school closures have posed unprecedented challenges for teachers, students and their parents. And the list of potential consequences is long, from interrupted learning to poor nutrition, from gaps in childcare to challenges around measuring and validating learning. And while some students are likely to recover from these difficulties, pupils in remote communities or from disadvantaged backgrounds might have a harder time bouncing back. A report from the Grattan Institute found that the achievement gap between disadvantaged and advantaged students widens at triple the rate in remote schooling compared to regular class. So today we want to ask, have policymakers done enough to ensure students are getting the best possible education while protecting their safety and that of their teachers in the pandemic? And what might be some of the long-term consequences of what's unfolded in recent months? Joining us today are three outstanding experts to discuss these questions. First, I'd like to introduce Professor Lawrence Saha. Larry is an emeritus professor in the School of Sociology at the ANU College of Arts and Social Sciences. He was both head of department of sociology and dean of the old faculty of arts here at ANU, and he's currently editor-in-chief for Social Psychology of Education, an international journal. Welcome, Larry. Thank you. Next, Dr. Marnie O'Brien joining us remotely. Money is an Honorary Research Fellow at the ANU Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research, and she currently serves as Chair of the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. Welcome, Marnie. Thank you, Angus. And finally, Glenn Fowler. 
Glenn is branch secretary of the Australian Education Union ACT branch. Glenn has taught in public secondary schools for 13 years in the ACT and in England. Welcome to you all. Thanks, Angus. At the beginning of the pandemic, schools all across Australia were experiencing disruptions. In a matter of weeks, parents, teachers and pupils had to adjust to virtual classrooms and homeschooling. There was also contradictory advice from state and federal governments on whether students should remain in schools. To start with, I'd like to ask you all, what's your overall impression of Australia's handling of school education during the pandemic? Larry, perhaps if we start with you. Well, I am aware of the fact that um, there was a lot of variation, you know, around uh, when this happened and taking into account that it did happen rather abruptly. I mean, it uh, was a decision that had to be made rather quickly. I, uh, I think we've done a lot better than, let's say, some of the overseas examples that, uh, that we know about. And I think that um, the action was taken quickly and um, there was a fast learning curve. I think uh, both teachers and students and parents uh, were having to get accustomed to adjusting very quickly to a totally new situation. And my impression is that uh, from what I've heard, there were obviously some disruptions and things of that nature. But given all that, I think in the end, um, it's about as best as one could do given the circumstances. Now, there might be a lot of disagreements on that, but I think you have to look at what are the alternatives. And uh, be interesting to hear what some of the others might have to say about that. Marnie, how about you? Well, I think that um, my observation is that what Larry says is absolutely true of urban schools, but I think what COVID-19 has done is that it has exacerbated discrepancies between well-resourced schools and those that are less well-resourced, particularly schools in remote Australia. Um, Virtual classrooms just don't work in communities where few homes have internet services, where families generally don't have laptops or iPads ready to use, and when schools just simply don't have the resources to support young people who are learning remotely. Um, You may or may not know that in remote Australia, young people are generally required to leave home to go away to boarding school. So the COVID Mm -hmm. pandemic, which required um, secondary-aged young people to return to communities uh, really has had a disastrous effect on education outcomes. Glenn, how about you? What's your overall impression? Well, my overall impression is that Australia has handled this pandemic with regard to education better than many other countries, but certainly here in the ACT where we've been intimately involved, uh, I'm not sure that much could have been done differently. It was actually a very um, positive experience um, during trying times And uh, we would say that that's largely because the government chose to work hand in glove through this with its workforce through its union. Um, That didn't happen in all of the states and territories. So we are um, committed um, now, um, government and union committed to a plan if there's further outbreaks of the virus, and I'm happy to go into details about that later if you wish. I think the the pandemic has shown a number of things. One is that teachers are invaluable. I think that the um, reputation of teachers has increased exponentially uh, and, and the value that people place on their work. Uh, I think it's shown that we need schools. Um, uh, remote education will never do the job. Um, It can supplement the work that we do in our schooling institutions, but it will never be a replacement. 
And um, Marnie's spot on. And I, I said this at the beginning of the pandemic, um, this has exacerbated inequity in Australian education. It's highlighted resource gaps. And this was entirely predictable. Australia already has um, a very unequal school education system compared to other OECD nations. And um, uh, you know, the reality is that for a period of time, some kids continued to fly along with their learning and other kids basically had a, a massive pause put on their learning. And I think you will see an asterisk um, next to the name of 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 this generation for a long time to come. That's really interesting. And I mean, all around the globe, school of, schools have had to close down as part of measures to contain COVID-19. According to UNESCO, by the end of March 2020, over 1.5 billion pupils or 87% of the world's student population across 165 countries had been affected by school closures. Glenn, what are some of the major challenges around remote learning for teachers, students and parents? Well, the ACT was pretty well placed to, to deliver remote learning. Um, we've had a policy in place for some years where every child from year 7 to 12 have a device provided for them by the government. So that's something that doesn't exist in other in any other state or territory. Um, but just having a device is not enough to continue your learning. You've got to have an, a home environment where learning is valued and encouraged. You've got to have an environment where um, the, the time and, and the atmosphere is adequate for people to continue their learning, for students to continue their learning. And you've also got to have um, a household where people are comfortable with with the technology, particularly for younger students. So we talk about variants. Um, many college-age students, year 11 and 12, barely skipped a beat during all of this. But when you're talking about um, kids age five, six or seven, remote learning is never going to cut it for them. Um, the the um, These are kids that can't type on a computer. They're still learning that skill. So, um, you know, in some cases, um, well, in the ACT, we were able to provide... Um, paper packs, l learning packs um, to students when their parents came and picked them up safely, picked up the packs safely at the school. But the the reality is that th this absolutely exacerbated um, the inequality. The kids that are already struggling would have struggled more um, and there needs to be a serious resource response to bringing those kids back up to speed and what we've seen from governments so far is entirely inadequate. Um, it's not enough to rely on um, home tutoring. Um, there, there needs to be a serious resource investment if we're going to mitigate the damage that this has done to a large number of Australian school students and their learning trajectory. We want to talk a little bit about some of the long-term consequences a little bit later on, but for now, just sticking with this issue of, I guess, remote, but also now the transition back to um, classroom learning. At the end of October, the number of partial or full school closures had declined, though with around 500 million pupils across the world still affected. What are some of the challenges transitioning now back to classroom-based teaching with the pandemic still ongoing? So obviously we've got a whole bunch of kids that haven't maintained their learning trajectory. So there's a, a lot of work, remedial work being done to ensure that the kids can get back to where they were. And that's that's just the job of our teachers to do that. And they they do that when, when kids are absent for a range of reasons. Now they're doing it en masse. But I think the, 
the most important thing is that teachers are supported properly in order to do that work. Um, and it's obviously been a major challenge in Victoria because they don't know whether they're coming or going down there and we're speaking to our colleagues regularly down there and just preparing that if there is an outbreak here in the ACT, uh, we'll be in a position to move quickly to a plan that minimises the damage but that protects everybody on site. Larry, what would you say some of the consequences are for kids when they stay out of school for an extended period of time like some of them have had to? Well, I think there are a lot of examples of that even outside of our experience here. But, you know, when we deal with um, children of refugees, for example, who've um, had their schooling interrupted for long periods of time uh, and the difficulty that they have to kind of get back into a, a kind of a routine where they where – they, uh, can stay in a classroom for a long period of time, for example. Their attention span and things of that nature are very much affected uh, and uh, disciplinary issues as well. I think that, um, I mean, I, I think, you know, what Glenn has said is very consistent with what a lot of research has, has, has pointed out as well. Um, this has highlighted uh, differences between students and the way different students um, approach the learning process. I mean, not all, not all young people are the same. I mean, mm -hmm. you've got young people who are very um, driven by their own personal desire to, to let's say, master a, a knowledge in science or maths or something like that. But you've got other students who are much more, who have much higher social requirements. I mean, they need to have more people around them to sort of help them in the learning process. Uh, and I think that some of the differences that we have seen has accentuated those mm. kinds of things. I mean, some some are very high, um, uh, you know, kind of on the individualistic level, and they can do it themselves, and others really do need other people around. And I think this is where a classroom environment becomes really important, uh, where students can see one another in the process, in the, in, the, in the learning process, and they do learn from each other as well as from, from teachers. So... Um, the challenge is really how to kind of even this out, and I, I, I do agree. I think what the what this period has demonstrated is the um, the inequality, but it's not just inequality in resources. I would say it's also inequality in in the way that uh, certain learning styles are more are, are more easily adaptable. Uh, I can I know from from anecdotal evidence that uh, uh, some parents complain that they're Kids couldn't couldn't spend more than thirty minutes at the computer without getting bored, you know, in the learning process. And I know others who say that their kids continually asked for more. They wanted more from the teachers. They said, "Okay, I finished this. Give me more. I want more to do." And this sort of demonstrates there's there's something else going on as well. And I think maybe it'll help turn attention to that and how to deal with that even in a back to classroom sort of face to face situation. Yeah. And I mean, particularly for those students who are struggling through the crisis, I mean, do you think we're going to see long-term implications for them? I think there will always be a mark of some kind, a period. I mean, it depends on how much longer this is it's going to take place. I mean, I think um, I think we've done rather well here in the ACT. I mean, we've really had a rather uh, shorter period, I think, than, than some other areas. But It was five weeks of remote learning. There was five Only weeks, five weeks yeah. total. Yep. Yeah, because there was a holiday that uh, yes. came in there, and, That's and, right. and that was kind of lucky too. But but um, it is true that any time there's a break, there's going to be a regression back to some lower level. 
I mean, this is true of summer breaks, you know, long illness or something like that. So there always is a, a catch-up sort of issue. Um, but it has been speculated about, you know, if we look at some other examples, for example, um, like uh, children of refugees, for example, who've come from war-strawn areas where the schools have been abandoned for long periods of time, they may never catch up totally. I mean, they're going to perhaps be struggling for a long period of time. Um, there's also the same speculation even at the higher education level. I mean, this 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 is, uh, although it's kind of like your college example, it's they tend to have an easier time uh, adjusting, I think, from from all accounts. But they're still worried too. I mean, it doesn't. They're not unaffected. Marnie, what were your thoughts about the possibility for long term consequences? I think the long term consequences are pretty severe. Um, even if you look at just access to education in the longer term, what happened when the COVID outbreak happened and that borders were sent back to remote communities where there was effectively no infrastructure to support their learning back in community, they dropped out of school altogether. And the community um, that we have looked at most closely in our research um, the teacher of the local primary school said to us that a number of secondary boarding schools had made contact to say, could you support our students when they come back? But the principals said, in fact, they didn't have staffing to be able to meet the needs of those kids. They didn't have the financial resources to be able to provide breakfast and lunch, which they routinely do for their students. And so those students gradually dropped away from education altogether. When borders reopened and boarding school students were able to return, and of course those who are attending schools in Victoria still are not in a position to be able to return back here. But um, in fact what happened was that all of those boarding students didn't return. The only ones who returned were ones who returned to Darwin schools and that was only a small number of um, students from this particular community. And even those students, the, the um, schools there said that the kids are very unsettled. They know that all of their peers are back at home and basically they've all dropped out at this point. So that can't have anything but disastrous consequences in the long term. Um, in relation to this issue of... Um, students transitioning back in and the kind of uh, residual damage that's been done by months out of the classroom, we need to be aware that young people coming from remote Australia very often carry a sense of shame that they're not actually academically at the same level as other young people. Being another year behind has exacerbated that issue as well. So it's um, there's a kind of am amplification of all of the existing problems that these young people face. Yeah, and I mean, you've recently published a study together with Dr. William Fogarty on remote communities and education, and you found, I believe, that remote Indigenous students boarding off country to advance their education opportunities is actually having negative consequences. Are these some of the challenges that you've seen as part of your research? Absolutely, Angus. Uh, in fact, what we found was that um, the young people from this one single community that we studied, and I would um, just preface my 
comments actually by saying that the study was invited by elders in the community who have observed this kind of pattern of disengagement with education over a number of years and they were so concerned that they commissioned us to do this research, worked closely with us on it. And we tracked the education histories of 100 secondary aged young people over the last 10 years. And what we found was from this one single community, they had been sent to 38 different schools in every state or territory across mainland Australia. So the capacity for schools when COVID hit to actually engage meaningfully with community was almost close to nil. Community members equally were confused about where kids were even at school. Some of them couldn't remember where the school was located in Australia. We saw a pattern of early disengagement from secondary school and that means that within the first year or two years, the majority of young people had dropped out. By year 10, so 15-year-olds, 80% of young people had dropped out of education altogether. So that means you've got a critical mass of young people in community, totally disengaged, no other um, program available to re-engage them until they turn 17 and they become eligible for the Community Development Program, which is effectively the Work for the Doll Program, which includes some education and training opportunities. They don't become available until 17. If you've got a young person who's dropped out at 13, then there is nothing for them to do until they turn 17, which has disastrous personal and social consequences. Um, When you've got, as I say, a critical mass of these young people in community already, you get the only young people who are engaged in education, who are away at boarding, coming back home, very difficult for them to um, kind of swim against the tide when all of their peers are effectively at home and doing nothing. Yeah, that's a pretty devastating picture that you paint. Look, when we come back, we're going to move on to a discussion about the politics of this and some of the policy implications. This seems like a good time to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. I'm still here with Marnie, Larry and Glenn. Before the break, we were talking about some of the implications of the COVID pandemic for education, particularly in remote Indigenous communities. Larry, was there something you wanted to ask Marnie? Um, yeah, Marnie, that was very interesting. And thanks very much for sharing that, um, those findings with us. 
my, my question, I mean, I have uh, some knowledge of, of the remote, um, the problems, uh, the problems in remote communities. Um, but it seems to me that the many of the things that you've described have been there for quite some time. In other words, this perhaps has accentuated some some issues, but am, am, am I right in thinking that disengagement, the difficulties of going back to local communities after being in boarding schools uh, has always been a problem for at least uh, and some of, of the, the children in, 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 in these sorts of educational contexts? Um, Larry, when we spoke to parents and grandparents in this community, it's a community that actually has had a long history of uh, boarding education and there is um, a significant level of capacity, if you like, in the community, many community members who are trained teachers themselves, and they are people who went right through the education system. They had choices of, at that stage, local education provision or boarding in Darwin. But what happened was that most of them well, all of them went to one of two schools in Darwin. So they went through as a cohort. They returned home as a cohort. What's happened now is that there are 78 remote communities in the Northern Territory where there is no secondary education pathway at all. And they have been decommissioned under current education policy in the Northern Territory. It's a... Um, a 10-year policy from 2015 to 2024. And it's based on the findings of the Wilson Review that said that really education in remote Australia is just too difficult and we're best to send kids off to boarding school. Um, the evidence in this community would suggest that it hasn't historically been too difficult to educate young people on country and to give them a range of opportunities for secondary pathways that fit their particular learning and social profile. Just to round it back to, I guess, some of the politics here, earlier in the year, Australia was facing partial lockdowns and school closures due to an increased number of COVID-19 cases. This has caused a lot of confusion as states such as New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT decided to close their schools, yet Prime Minister Scott Morrison and the federal government maintained that schools should be kept open. Larry, do you think the federal government was right to insist on keeping schools open? Look, let me put it this way. I mean, in an ideal, if I were to, to follow the ideal sort of uh, model of, 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 of education, I would say yes. And, um, uh, and uh, I think that what seems to me is that uh, given the experience of having the schools open, really hasn't created as much of a of a spike, for example, in in um, in the spread of the virus as it perhaps was expected to, which which I think everyone was very much afraid might happen, but uh, compared to some of the examples that we have coming in from overseas, I think the schools here have have done rather well, uh, even you know while they have been open, and um, there seem to be the odd cases, but you don't. Hear the same stories where several hundreds, say for example, of children from one school all of, all of a sudden, you know, come down with the virus or carry the virus or something like that, become contagious, take it home and and spread it in that way. Um, so, 
perhaps it's the implementation of social distancing and, and, and well, hygiene particularly, I think, in, in, in the younger age groups that's more problematic. But it seems to have, have worked. I don't know. Perhaps um, those with the example of working in that context might have a better idea. But that's the impression I've got. Yeah, Glenn, what, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, our experience in late March was that there were, of course, mixed messages going out from state and territory governments and the federal government about the um, the danger or the hazard um, within schools, that is to students, but also although we were being um, reassured that students weren't big spreaders of the virus uh, in schools, it's just the reality that adults spend a lot of time in close proximity to each other. Um, and it was a very quick decision made by our union to meet with the government on the morning of March 25 and say that that our members are really um, feeling incredibly vulnerable in the workplace and that they need to be given the option to work from home. And we said to the government that that needed to occur by three o'clock that afternoon. We were being inundated with um, people that felt unsafe um, and what really tipped them over the edge was Prime Minister Morrison's comment that you're an essential worker if you have a job. And there were um, uh, 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 there was a distinct feeling in our profession that we were lambs to the slaughter um, so that um, other people's um, lives could go on and that um, we were expected to what was being expected of us was not being expected of so many other professions. Um, so that was what happened in March. We had we then had two weeks before the school holidays and three weeks using a hub school model here in the ACT for the very small percentage of students who needed to attend school. And I, I should say that the Canberra public, not the Prime Minister, determined what an essential worker was because 98.8% of parents realised that they were in a position to keep their kids at home. As difficult as that uh, was, and, and I experienced it myself, it was an um, incredible challenge for people trying to balance work. And I won't call it homeschooling because it's not, but it was it was remote learning and attempting to facilitate and support remote learning. Why do you think there was such a disconnect between the states and the federal government? Well, there's just politics in this, and you can see the extreme version of this in the United States. You know, this this should not be a political issue. This should not be a culture war. Um, this is about listening to the medical advice, acknowledging that the virus presented a danger, acknowledging that numbers were climbing and climbing, that everybody needed to be safe, students and staff, um, and that it's not unpatriotic to follow medical advice and create... Um, a, 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 the safest possible environment for learning to continue as best as possible. Um, because the ACT, and I speak mainly about the ACT, because the ACT acted like that decisively and got on top of it, we only missed five weeks of face-to-face -face learning and then we were able to transition back. Um, and it's been pretty smooth sailing ever since with a plan now in place with some tweaks based on what we learnt during the experience, that if we have another outbreak at a, at a local level or across the territory, we're ready to go with something that will protect staff, but 
build on what we learned about remote education. But I acknowledge that the ACT is um, the promised land in many respects um, and that what we do here cannot possibly be replicated in other in environments. Um, but it's, it's, it's all about a balance. We think we got the balance right. Some of the rhetoric, particularly from the right of politics around this in Australia and abroad, is seriously worrying. And why is it, do you think, that the ACT is so different in this context? Is it just the fact that, you know, the ACT hasn't had a case or hasn't had a case outside of um, hotel quarantine for some time or is it something else? Well, I mean, there's a range of factors why the ACT was so well positioned, relatively well-resourced schools, high uptake of digital learning, teachers that are pretty well-versed in delivering, supplementing their face-to-face teaching with uh, online learning. That really exposed, this period really exposed the gaps and the variance in people's comfort with delivering in that in that manner. Um, it was the best possible professional learning experience for those that were a little bit behind and they had to come up to speed. But you've got some teachers that relished that learning environment and others that did it um, out of sufferance. But um, they will be better placed to do it the next time. Um, you've got a, a, a population here that um, I think is uh, pro-science, that understood that difficult decisions had to be made, um, people that are relatively, well, the highest educated people in Australia with the highest incomes in Australia, with books in the home as a general rule, uh, people who value learning, um, and then the ACT's response, you know, being a, a city-state as it is, um, people could communicate easily with each other in a small geographic region, and we we all collectively were able to get on top of the virus um, and go back to pretty much normal learning for months now, with the exception that large gatherings of students have have not been able to happen. Um, but it's a pretty good story here in the ACT. It's going to be more difficult elsewhere, but I think people could learn from what we've done. Absolutely. Just to follow up on that, um, what are some of the things that were introduced, let's say, when in getting back in when the schools reopened uh, that made the teachers feel, you know, more secure, you know, and... and, and, and oh, in terms of in with terms the virus. Of, yes. And yeah. Then, I mean, I know, I know that, this, that they were, it was really the teachers that were the ones that were yeah. the most, I think, threatened by this. Yeah. And, 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 and so, I mean, initially we so, had to deal with um, questions around the amount of hand sanitizer and all of that stuff. That was tidied up pretty quickly here in the ACT. Mm as most things can be tidied up pretty quickly here in the ACT. Um, social distancing is virtually impossible in a school environment for students and staff. So anyone that thinks that schooling can take place on site with so social distancing requirements being met is kidding themselves. Um, and um, and I, I went into each of the 13 what we called hub schools. These were for schools uh, students that had to get to school. Um, there was no social distancing despite... Uh, all the best intentions, it's it's not yeah. possible. So if we'd had a bigger problem with the virus, we wouldn't have been able to continue with that model either. Um, and I think... Um, uh, I mean, we didn't get very much information. I mean, we knew how many cases there were, which were very few compared. Yeah. Well, um, well certainly every, everyone was less than Victoria. But what um, are, there, are there any statistics about 
anyone getting infected? Any of the teachers? Uh, do we know how many? Or? Oh, a very tiny number. There was one localised outbreak at one school. Right. Uh, and that was uh, – a model was used which we still think is fit for purpose, which is that you close the school for two weeks, the, the deep cleaning goes on, uh, teachers are, are not expected to actually deliver lessons and students aren't expected to participate for that two-week period, but work is provided that they can go on with more individualised learning um, during that period. And one thing that's really come up ha has been, if we if we have to go through it again, the parents, students have made it very clear that they would like to see more daily contact, pastoral contact with their teachers for those kids that feel isolated. So they were getting their lessons online, mm -hmm. but the daily check, well, there, there was variance as to how often people were having check-ins. Some kids kind of perversely did better. A distinct minority of kids performed better during COVID different learning styles, but most kids thrive on the social engagement that schools provide. And Marnie, just on this issue, I guess, of remote learning and teaching, as we've previously discussed, lack of internet access is a major hurdle for providing quality education in remote communities. In April this year, Telstra said it was working with state governments to provide 20,000 disadvantaged students with free internet access to support online learning and teaching. Do you think that COVID-19 might actually be a blessing in disguise and that it will push governments to finally establish better internet access in remote communities and indeed elsewhere in Australia? Angus, better internet access is certainly an issue in remote Australia uh, and improved access would be helpful. However, um, once again, remote education or education in remote Australia will take a more holistic revamp. We know that policy responses that tend to look at kind of one problem in isolation are rarely successful in dealing with complex issues in any place. And of course, in remote Australia, you've got issues of crowded housing. You've got issues of um, the lack of kind of support that young people need to be able to engage in um, online learning. Typically, you know, I think parents, I know I'm speaking to you from Victoria and I know many, many Victorian parents who are saying, oh, it's been exhausting that, you know, we've had to support the kids in all sorts of ways to help them to engage, to keep them interested, to give them the self-discipline that they need to um, continue all by themselves. And in fact, in remote Australia, where you've got 17 people living in a house, as is the case in the community that we looked at, it's impossible for a young person to be expected to be able to go online, to keep up with peers who they feel are learning at a different rate and learning in different styles to what suits them. So internet access is certainly one issue, but it's only one of um, many issues that need to be holistically addressed. Look, now where getting towards the end of our conversation here today. But before I let you all go, we'd like to, I guess, get your views on some of the policy solutions. While Australia has done much better than many countries in containing the virus, as we've discussed, notably with yesterday's announcement of zero COVID-19 related infections and deaths in Victoria, this pandemic is going to be an ongoing challenge until a vaccine can be developed and widely administered. Can I ask each of you, 
How can policymakers ensure the safety of our school communities while ensuring students get the best possible education? Larry, maybe if we start with you. We've probably learned a lot in, 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 the, in the experience that we've had this year. So it might um, uh, lead to a little bit more rational discussion as to what, what are the options. Uh, I, think, I think one should start with the, uh, the goal of getting as close to possible as the ideal situation, which is getting as much face-to-face uh, learning as possible. Uh, I think, um, and, uh, and this would be across the board at all levels, and uh, I think uh, there have to be mechanisms, though, to, to try and preserve some of the things that we do know that work, and that's the sanitizing, that's the uh, uh, maybe spreading the, the children out, at least in the class room, uh, more uh, in the in the teaching learning process, and um, and keeping distance where possible. I know it's less possible with younger children, uh, but um, but still, I mean, you know, these sorts of things have to be taken into account. And then educating about the situation itself. I think that there can be more done in in uh, teachers being perhaps much more sensitive. But what we're actually doing is also teaching children about this virus. I mean, it's amazing what they can say now when, you know, when they come home because they're all being told this, you know, and, and, um, I think that's going to increase, you know, as, as, as long as we have to deal with this in the new normal. And, uh, as far as the spreading of resources, the making available of various resources, I mean, we know that in, in the ideal situation, we want as much of that as possible. Uh, and we can only just strive to achieve it. Marnie, how about in the context of remote education? I think Larry's point that um, we need to design schools to be as close as possible to the ideal situation is a prescient point to make. In remote Australia, public policy attention has largely been focused on the supply side of education. So looking at teacher training, school leadership, curriculum, development, school resources, but there has been very little Um, focus on the demand side of education, what Aboriginal families want for their young people. Our research shows very clearly that both parents and young people themselves understand the value of education. They want education, but the barriers to entry into the education system as they stand are just too high. They've been made even higher by COVID. And so what we're hoping is that we can work with government to be able to look at these problems and come up with some creative responses to them. Glenn, what were your thoughts? So I think the safety side of it in schools is the most straightforward. I think our schools, largely across Australia and certainly here in the ACT, are doing everything that they can do to keep those environments COVID safe. When there is an outbreak, I think the right thing to do was and remains to explore a remote learning model um, and and from what we learnt, um, we're in a position to put in place something that makes the best of a bad situation. It's a four-page document that I've been sharing with other states and territories, which sets out what remote learning would look like for the teachers and support staff and also the students. But in terms of being able to make up for the damage that's been done by this pause in so many students' learning... Um, Australia needs to continue to take a very good hard look at itself with regard to its allocation of resources. 
And I'm talking not only about digital resources, um, but about um, the the bodies of educators that are required to come in and assist those kids who've fallen behind to give them the one-to-one attention that they need. Australia, and this is based on the, the PISA 2018 results, PISA is the test for 15-year-olds. It's an international sample test, which shows that there, there are not 77 countries involved in the PISA testing. Australia is the ninth worst of those 77 countries for the equitable allocation of resources between disadvantaged and advantaged schools. And access to portable devo- uh, computers for students in disadvantaged schools has declined by 3% since 2015, whilst access for students in advantaged schools has increased by 9%. Australia has uh, a problem that people find it difficult to talk about, but that we find ourselves talking about every day, which is that we are pouring money into the schools that need it the least and exposing and leaving vulnerable the students in schools that need those resources the most. COVID has been a very harsh light into that scenario. Australia has the capacity to address that problem, but currently not the will. Plenty to think about there. Look, thanks so much to Marnie, Larry and Glenn for your time and insights today. Thank you, Angus. Thank you. Thank you very much. Listeners, did you enjoy today's podcast? Then you might want to leave us a review. We always love hearing from you and what you think about the podcast, or you can get in touch with us directly. You can tweet us at APPS Policy Forum or send us an email at podcast at policyforum.net. Or better yet, you should join the pod squad. We're on Facebook and you can find our group there by typing Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. Your membership comes with some fantastic perks, such as early access to the Ask Policy Forum series. For this podcast, we get together a panel of experts to answer your questions. So if you want to have direct input into our podcast discussions, then you should definitely join. We're looking forward to welcoming you. And make sure not to miss out on any future episodes of Policy Forum Pod by subscribing to the podcast now. We're on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite shows from. We'll be back with another episode of Policy Forum Pod next week. But until then, bye for now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.